Hello and welcome to Talking Capital. I'm Ian Barnard, CEO of Capital Generation Partners, and I'm here with our Chief Investment Officer, Robert Sears, to answer three questions posed by our clients in recent weeks. For those who don't know us already, CapGen is a private investment office for families with capital. We are go-anywhere investors, so in the course of these episodes, you can expect us to cover any question across any asset class in any region of the world, from bricks and mortar to portfolio derivatives. In summary, this is a podcast where we answer the questions playing on the minds of sophisticated long-term investors. Do subscribe if that sounds up your street and you'll enjoy two episodes. So since we were last here, Donald Trump has won convincingly in Iowa and Ron DeSantis has pulled out of the presidential race. We've had military action in the Red Sea or uh, Anglo-American military action in the Red Sea. And we have Modi inaugurating the new temple of Ayodhya just in time for the Indian election. And moving to our world, I read this morning that there's talk of bailout for the Chinese stock market. And I suppose these are the unexpected or contingent news, things that appear slightly by surprise. And then there's the more predictable news, I guess, news that we know is coming, even if we're not sure what it actually holds. And I think that's how I see the earnings season. We know the earnings season is coming our way, but we can't be absolutely certain until it's upon us what it holds. And over the next few weeks, we're going to see companies start to report their earnings for Q4 last year in brackets. We've also seen some of the Q4 GDP data coming out as well. So we're going to have a richer picture in the next few weeks of what the end of 2023 was really like in practice. So Robert, big picture, what are we expecting as the earnings season kicks off? Yeah, I think the earnings season is going to tell us a few of the stories we've been um, talking about over over the last year or so. So I think story number one, actually, is interesting. US and Europe, if we split them apart, the US season is far more uh, front-loaded than the European season of earnings. So the next couple of weeks, this week in particular, and um, going forward, we'll see the bulk of the big US earnings seasons. And in the US, the big picture is all about AI and those magnificent seven. So it's the same story that we were talked about, about what was leading stock, stock price performance in 2023. It's all about AI in the first half of the year and those magnificent seven leading the rest of the market, and indeed was the bulk of the gain in the S&P last year, over 60% of the gain, just those seven stocks. So I think that will be the focus of most attention on earnings. And last year looks to have been, and I think Q4 will continue, a pretty resilient year for big tech. Um, So clearly the winners, those that were benefiting the most, NVIDIA, Microsoft, we'd expect their earnings to continue to be pretty strong, and maybe see some catch up with some of the others who are going a bit slower uh, in terms of launching their their product, I think the expectation really of those big seven is only Tesla, who's already warned, is going to have a pretty negative um, print. The others all are expected to have pretty pretty good um, data. But I suppose, and that's the big but, is actually when we look at the year on year increase, the market probably will be showing earnings go, being up over the, over the year slightly um, for Q4. But for the year as a whole in Q4, once you pair away those big seven, actually it's a year of decline. And certainly, even with them, it's a year of decline in real terms. So smaller nominal increase in in earnings growth, but actually inflation was running pretty high last year. So in real terms, earnings were were down and certainly down in the other sectors. And in particular, I think if you think about energy and industrials, there could be some, some pretty negative 
negative prints in there. So I think the big picture is affected by AI. And under the surface, we can see that really there's been this, this sort of year of decline, another year of decline in, in earnings. Now, maybe the earnings in, in the US are bottoming. We'll have to see about how growth turns out this year. But I think, and here's the big important, so there'll be a lot of talk as well alongside the earnings announcements about how AI this, AI that, and attention to the investments. Um, but we really need to see is the, pro the problem is expectations for earnings have already been aggressively lowered across a number of companies. So there may well be quite a few earnings beats, but that's against quite low expectations across most companies coming into Q4. And also, which I think is interesting, is the market, as we've talked about, is pretty priced to perfection. So multiples are pretty high. So I think the S&P, maybe the, the, um, the, the number of earnings could be something like 220 for the year. We'll, we'll see where, where it pans out. Um, but it's the multiple in the 20s is the problem. And when you've got this price to perfection, you do need earnings to grow pretty aggressively to keep pace or match that expectation. And so that's where I think the market could be quite harsh in terms of response to earnings. So yes, the bar's low uh, from uh, sort of expectations we marked down. But if you beat an earnings expectation, I think the response is likely, and we've seen that so far, the first few that have come out, it's likely to be pretty muted. If you miss an earnings expectation that's already been lowered, could, the market is likely to punish you more. So I think there will be a bit of asymmetry there. So I think that's the US. But I think when we turn to Europe, again, without the big tech in Europe, the story is actually more of decline, more generalized decline, led by energy and industrials. And also, you'll, we're likely to see more of the impact. And this will come a bit later, because as I said, the bulk of European earnings comes a couple of weeks later, more into February. You'll see did higher interest rates affect companies with higher debt levels? How was the European consumer affected? So we'll be able to, to tease out a bit more of the data there to see is the cost of living really having more of an impact? So I think that maybe gives us more of a, a status of how the general economy is going. Um, and the US will have to pass the difference between the big tech, the, the large companies, and the rest of the market to really try and get a signal for the future. So you make the point there, Robert, that people need to hit their earnings growth targets and underperforming will be punished. And I suppose the other dimension of these earnings announcements will be forward guidance. So there's, okay, how did we do Q4? Did we hit these growth targets that we've set ourselves, been set for us, that we've promised yes, no? If no, then things could be could be unfortunate for the stock. And then you've got, well, Q4's behind us, Q1 2024, and the rest of 2024 lies ahead. What hints have there been, although people have to be very cautious about this, what, what's your sense of what forward guidance is going to be across the market there, Robert? Because you've rightly distinguished between the Magnificent Seven and then the different sectors behind there. I think I think for guidance in general is it's it's sort of you've had a, a bad period. You want to put all the kitchen sink, all the bad news. Um, and now it's not been a terrible period, but I think there is the tendency with companies to use it as an excuse, higher interest rates, and keep expectations quite low. So there is the chance for expectations to beat then during the course of 2024. If we do see growth sort of having this slowing but soft landing, there's the chance actually earnings can. Um, can respond to that. So I don't think there's going to be a lot of bullish um, announcements for the year. Now, some of the companies, again, who are, who've made the AI investments may be looking ahead to the integration into their applications and, and where the growth is going to be. So I think th those are the examples where you may see more, more bullish sentiment. But 
I think in general, expectation management is more to um, more to the downside than than uh, setting really positive expectations. Now we're generally not stock pickers. We select excellent managers and delegate to them across different sectors and different geographies and different styles of responsibility for picking the stocks. Nevertheless, we do follow very closely what's happening at the level of individual stocks and particularly the stocks within the portfolios of the managers we're using. And I wonder, Robert, if you can talk about how you how you incorporate the information we are gathering about those stocks and how they are affecting managers' performance into the way in which we we use those managers and deploy capital. Are we, for example, going to be adjusting allocations because of what happens in a quarterly earnings season? Yeah, so I think on the headline level is we definitely look through. We look through to understand the risk factors that are going to drive our client portfolios. That's really the key um, key forces that are out there. So those, not just equity risks, but thinking about sector uh, concentration, industry con- concentration, even crowding within the individual names. So looking through to the underlying um, stock uh, stock level exposure. So we want to make sure we've got diversified portfolios and that where there are concentrations, those are actually in line with, with our views for the future. So I think that's that's broadly how we're looking to control uh, control risk within the portfolio. Now, there are some examples, co-investments of individual stocks. I think that's the example. Is this environment could be a pretty good environment for stock pickers when you start to see things broaden out a little bit more. And we're seeing examples of that. Some companies that have been basically not moving much, the illiquid companies in the UK, suddenly hear an announcement um, at a company level, they're going to sell, um, break up the company and sell, sell their assets. And we see these jumps in stock price performance. So that often happens with event-driven managers, but some of the more active stock pickers within the portfolio. So that's certainly something where we've got a relative concentration that we look, look to quite closely. Now, my general take on earnings season is they give you a lot of good information. So that's the best source for us as managers of portfolios and looking for the 10 years ahead is to try and see how is the economic data actually being reflected. And you can look into the future as well from forward guidance from companies on the ground in particular sectors. It can be really useful, both public companies, but also within the big private portfolios that we have and speaking to the big private managers that we work with. You can get a lot of information on the companies that are not included within um, within the public markets that d- tell you sort of how the economy is working. So I think that level of data is really useful and can help to guide the level of risks we're taking in the portfolios, whether we want to add more protection. Um, so that really is, is, I think, the best use of an earnings season to try and determine on those big risk factors, how should we be adjusting? Uh, hopefully, you've, you've got a diversified portfolio. You've not got individual concentration in single names, so you're not having to be knee-jerk. And in general, also, I think there's a lot of noise in quarterly earnings. We have to remember that. We're thinking about the investment for the future. When you discount the, um, the future earnings of companies, even today in a modern world where the life of companies is significantly shorter than it used to be, it's still into the decades. And when you think into the decades, actually one quarter's earning has very little um, impact on that long-term valuation. It shouldn't affect the, the noise in markets that much. So you have to really um, take that into account. So I don't think you should be um, moving, if you're thinking as a long-term investor, um, moving, uh, making big portfolio moves based on individual 
um, earning seasons. The only example would be if suddenly uh, it, it sort of points to the, the whole thesis in a stock or sector of stocks is sort of under threat. So let's take a, a, an example in the past. So if AI shows up, uh, like, like sorry, in the past, if we look at newspaper earnings, used to be a very reliable earnings source. Suddenly, with the internet comes along, and you can start to see from some of the earnings calls, actually, this industry is in secular decline, and the earnings going out decades are under threat. That's when maybe you do make a big change to try and remove a sector that's going to be fundamentally disrupted. So that's the sort of long-term secular themes that really, you, the, 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 alongside the macro data, the most important things to pull out. Otherwise, you need to bear in mind that one quarter's earnings is one quarter's earnings and doesn't affect uh, long-term valuations that much. Yes, I think there's a very rich topic of discussion there of how we use the very, very, well, very widespread, globally widespread and very granular information about what's happening in industries and companies and sectors from the existing portfolio in order to inform our sense of where opportunity for the future might lie ahead. There's a virtuous cycle where the breadth of our coverage allows us to identify those things that might no longer be working and those things that might work well in the future. And it, it feeds on itself as a positive feedback loop, but probably a, probably a topic for, a, for another day. Uh, perhaps we should move to interest rates. So we've talked here, or you've talked, Robert, perhaps about the, the dance between uh, markets and the Federal Reserve, where the Federal Reserve has some objectives around inflation and unemployment and a big tool that it uses is short-term interest rates and there are transmission mechanisms by which those short-term interest rates have economic impacts but part of the economic impact is determined by market behavior and the markets are guessing what the fed is going to do and not going to do and you have this reflexive dance and i suppose the fact that we've talked so much about it tells you that it is a big thing. And actually, the direction of interest rates in a world that still for the time being is pretty globalized are very, very important. And there's an extent to which it's a one trade world. I wonder, though, if you could talk, Robert, about the, because we, again, you, you've talked a lot about this, trying to find assets and asset classes that are not correlated to these big market uh, elements for example, interest rates. So can you just talk a bit about the asset classes that you think are least correlated to to rates uh, and the ones that we find helpful in our portfolios? Yeah, um, no, it's, I mean, it's a really uh, sort of big picture topic at the moment. That is, that is clearly where most people's attention focuses. Now, if we think about it from a sort of fundamental basis, there's a reason why. Any investment, you're thinking about discounting cash flows. That's the key cornerstone of, of investing. And what do you need? You need the three parts. How, what cash flows are we going to get into the future? If you can work that out, that's, that's usually pretty hard. How risky those cash flows are. So the risk level and riskier assets, you need a bigger risk premium because those cash flows are more uncertain. And then the rate at which you discount it, which, which comes from interest rates. So interest rates is a component in the pricing of any asset. So there is a fundamental reason why it should matter. It isn't the only thing as it appears at the moment. And that's the unfortunate thing. Markets tend to be quite reductionist. You want to be risk on, risk off. That's been the talk of the last 10 years or interest rates up or down. And 
unfortunately, then it's not just the technical. Actually, you're discounting the cash flow, and that's why it should matter. Markets are moving more in response to interest rates, and assets are becoming more correlated because of that market behavior. So that risk premium is going up or down based on the view of interest rates. And that's a bit of a problem because that makes it harder to find those, those under uncorrelated assets because, in effect, um, the, the market's view about whether interest rates are going this year actually then ends up affecting every asset or a lot of assets because that's where cash is actually flowing. That's where the, the, the sentiment is moving up or down in the short term. Having said that, and we're seeing that certainly in the data, so a lot of stocks uh, are correlated to um, interest rates in a way that they didn't used to be in the past. And we shouldn't expect that's going to continue forever. So yes, interest rates are focused now. They won't be all the time. Actually, fundamentals will win through in the end. So we don't want to think, for example, value against growth. Oh, value to go up, you need interest rates to go up. That's that's not the case. It's worked in different ways in the past. Um, so, you know, market correlations do move. But what is less sensitive to interest rates? Well, in a way, um, you want assets which um, have shorter duration. So shorter duration cash flows. If the cash is coming soon, then that discount rate plays less of a factor. If it's a long duration assets where the cash is coming a long time into the future, your discount rate is really important because that's that's when you're going to receive your cash a long way in the future. So shorter duration assets against longer duration, you can you can um, you know that's less sensitive to interest rates. So if we're thinking about fixed income, low duration bonds, floating rate notes, um, some of the um, corporate debt that's floating rate as well, some of the loans, that that's an example. If we think about equities, again. It's more the companies that are less growth stocks, more the value stocks where it's an asset play. Or it could be event-driven examples where, again, it's about a breakup of a company. You're getting the cash soon. You're going to have the realization soon. That can then be um, or merger and uh, M&A activity where, where event-driven managers are, are playing spreads. Those spreads can be short-duration assets and, again, can be a bit less sensitive um, to interest rates. So uh, in hedge funds, that's another example. One other example, I suppose, although then there is some interest rate risk, is uh, which I, I'll pull out because maybe we'll, we'll talk about it a bit later as well. But we talked about uh, in, insurance-linked securities last year. So a lot of those can be quite short-duration assets on events over six or 12-month contract. And there it's all about more about the spread. The interest rate is a component at the start to return, so it does matter. But actually, once you've locked that in at the start, um, it's, it's less or... Um, less of a component if, if the, the the spread is the the key part that you're um, trading or investing on. And similarly with credit, if you can disentangle rather than buying a bond with a duration risk and the credit spread, if you buy short duration bonds or just trading the credit um, part, that can be um, less less correlated to rates. So I think th those are some of them. And I, similarly, I think the, the interesting thing, some of the other protective assets we talked about, now clearly bonds completely correlated to, to interest rates. But one way you can get exposure to bonds is by having a dynamic manager. So a futures trading manager can go long or short rates. So there your exposure isn't one direction to rates, it's exposing to the trend in rates. So that's a, another way you can get that sort of protection that you might normally have got from a bond if you want to do it with with less um, less interest rate risk. So I think those, those are some of the ways that you can, in the different asset classes, that you can get um, investments with less correlation to, to interest rates. Can we just quickly digress into scarcity assets? So you've talked about productive assets there, Robert, and your baseline, I suppose, is 
the interest rate that's an alternative to, well, arguably bonds are part of the productive asset mix. But you've got a benchmark that's being set and you can measure other productive assets, those that generate cash flows against you know, what's available from, from interest rates. But clearly there are assets out there that have no cash flow at all, the scarcity assets. I suppose the two big ones that are talked about are Bitcoin and gold. And one sometimes hears the line that, oh, well, they're unaffected by interest rates because they don't produce any cash flow anyway. Now, that conventional theory says that's not right because the the opportunity cost of holding a non-yielding scarcity asset is the alternative that's available in the productive asset mix. But I wonder if you could just talk a little bit, Robert, about your sense of of where that is. Do, do you think that these scarcity assets are detaching themselves, I'm thinking particularly Bitcoin, but not exclusively, detaching themselves from what's happening with interest rates? Short answer, not at all. I think and that's that's the way to do it. Because exactly as you said, Ian, the gold is completely correlated to the opportunity cost of, of interest rates. So, and, and, and we see it very closely. So if you look at real rates in particular, because that's the one thing when we're talking about rates, the bit that can be distracting and is really important at the moment is you've got the nominal rate, but you've got the real rate and the inflation piece, and they can move in different directions. And gold moves very closely to the real rate as you would think, because it is an inflation-correlated asset. And so it behaves a bit like an inflation-linked bond, actually, and th- that correlation is pretty close. So uh, you're not really running away. Now, it can diverge because there are moments when suddenly you might be more afraid of, of disorder in the world and in times of conflict where a gold could suddenly do really well, and that can be driven by sentiment. So there are divergences, but the correlation to rates is is really pretty crucial. And even with Bitcoin, Bitcoin arguably, it's the correlation to risk sentiment, and risk sentiment is so closely linked at the moment as we're talking about to, to interest rates. So yes, like, as another scarce asset, it should be correlated to rates, but it, it's acting like the market on steroids in a way. It's the risk on, risk off, Suddenly, if there's more liquidity in the market and liquidity itself is a function of rates and quantity of money, then uh, Bitcoin moves up and down. So, um, yeah, I think very much you can't, you can't avoid um, the interest rate correlation in the, the, those assets in particular, although at extremes and there can be individual moments like Bitcoin. Suddenly, you're able to access it easier if, if a lot of ETFs are approved in the US. That can lead to surges in prices. So correlations are never perfect and there are individual Examples: If suddenly gold is mined in in outer space by uh, by Elon Musk, and suddenly there's an abundant supply of gold, the gold price craters. So there are there are examples where they can diverge. But if we're saying, are they an asset which you can rely on to give you uncorrelated assets to to interest rates? I think if you're thinking on a sort of five year horizon, not not really. They're they're not ones to um, to consider in particular. You mentioned there a bit on these uncorrelated asset classes, those uncorrelated to rates, some of the hedge fund strategies. And I'm going to link that to a comment you made a couple of years ago, and we I heard repeated at our recent asset allocation meeting that the for hedge funds, the decade ahead is going to be kinder than the decade that lies behind us. Now, what is a hedge fund? There's lots of debate about is there really commonality between them other than of fee incentives and structures, putting that to one side, and and accepting the label. I wonder if you could talk, Robert, about how then you see hedge funds in our portfolios, given your sort of 
broad view that probably the future is going to the near future is going to be a bit kinder to them than the near past. Yeah, I think for these big picture trends in markets in general, it's a lot of it is down to supply and demand. And so a lot of supply of uh, capital into one area, typically it drives down returns. And you have the glory period where an investment does well. The following decade, usually all the money surges in, you get lots of new participants, returns are really good, and then they don't do well. So that's the story of hedge funds. At the end of the 2000s, dot-com boom, they sort of avoided the big cratering of equity markets because they were long short and they could avoid um, some of the sector concentration. So it was a really good period for hedge funds. All the money surged in in the early 2000s. And then unfortunately, we have 2007-8 where there's um, the big dislocation and it's a balance sheet recession where everything's going down in one go, including hedge funds. Suddenly, hedge funds become unloved. And there were too many of them, too many bad participants. And we've seen that weeding out the last 10 years. Of there were too many hedge funds and you get rid of most of the ones that weren't, weren't as good, natural selection. Also, a period of lower interest rates meant a lot of strategies, returns were going to be lower anyway. Um, so now hedge funds go into the next decade pretty unloved. Whereas you may compare it to private equity, where they've had a golden 20 years, avoid um, the 2007-8 recession because it was so quick that you didn't really get your... Um, investments marked down. So if you're always driving in the, the rearview mirror and say, well, this worked the last 10 years, it's a strategy which generally doesn't work in markets. So I think from the first point, if you're going in with a lot of hedge funds having been removed and we're starting the, so they start very unloved. And yet we're now seeing rising volatility, rising interest rates and uh, sort of rising dispersion. It should be an environment which should be better for hedge funds. Um, and you would expect returns in the next decade to be better than the last. And in the same way, when we talked about this two years ago, given equity markets were so expensive, the chance of hedge funds certainly over, let's say, a three-year horizon beating private equity was actually pretty high. That was sort of the, um, the, 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 the bet, as it were, that you, you might, might take at that, that moment in time. And even as we speak now, where the S&P is hitting around record highs, so we might think, well, it was a great two years. The S&P is only up uh, you know, a few percentage points over that period. Basically, equities have been flat for two years. And if we're looking at some of the hedge funds that do better in that type of environment, sort of moving on to what we want use hedge funds for in the portfolio, let's take macro funds. Even the aggregate macro fund is doing better than the S&P over the last two years as we stand because it protected particularly well in the, in the difficult year for equities and bonds of 2022. So I think that's very much how we view hedge funds within the portfolios. Hedge funds is a, is a sort of bucket. It's lots of different strategies. Really, they've only got in common the, the, the fee schedule. And even there, there's some difference. So you do have to pick your pieces. So the strategies we like to protect portfolios have to do the benefit of diversification. They can be diversifiers with a positive expected return. And things like macro and futures trading managers do exactly that. They're one of the few strategies which do well in that time of crisis when equities are going down. And we certainly saw that in 2022. So at this moment, towards the end of the cycle, more risk for equities, we would expect and we do position our portfolios with more in those types of strategies compared to some others. Within that, there are still other ways to make money. And we, we've seen the multi-PM, multi-strategy funds, long, short. This should be an environment where they do a bit better with more dispersion. So there are ways to make, make money and they, those can be used in portfolios um, in the right way. Um, but you do have to be conscious of costs. So there are moments you want to pay a bit more for active management and be a bit more long short. And now's the environment where that should be the case. 
some of those event-driven strategies we talked about with lower duration actually should do really well if there's more change and disruption in markets. So th- those can be used within portfolios, but they, they have to be more focused about return generation. Yes, they provide some diversification, but they, they, they have a, a purpose of return generation. So each thing you use has to have a purpose in the portfolio. It has to make sense, net of fees. Some of the strategies you can get quite cheaply, like futures trading. Um, actually, it's more commoditized. It's in effect a, a, a new form of beta. And some strategies you have to pay for um, and pay fees, as provided you're getting something that's different and provides that excess return net of fees, it can have a useful role within portfolios. So at the moment, we have more than we usually do in hedge funds. Won't always be the case, but th- this is an environment where they, they actually could do pretty well over the, over the coming few years. Robert, you touched on fees. I wonder if you could just talk about how we think about the relationship of active management and the fees you have to pay for it within portfolios given where we feel we are in the investment cycle yeah so i I think it can be a bit of a paradox but equally uh what you've spent the fees but what your return is the net of fees return so if, if it's an environment where you have negative returns in cheap asset classes you're not protecting yourself by taking lower fees where fees really pay um a big difference is it's compounding over long duration so it's the duration of paying the fees which really matters. So actually, if you look at your portfolio, we're not saying pay high fees the whole time. But if there are periods where you can pay higher fees to protect yourself, you can actually over the whole cycle have a lower return and have a high, sorry have a higher return and have a lower fee burden. So I think it's choosing when to pay fees and not when to pay fees can be useful. So it's better to pay for fees when you're rewarded and it's giving you something that you can't get elsewhere. There's no point just going for bargain basement, low fees, when expected returns in those asset classes are quite low. Having said that about returns, I do do want to say it was the case two years ago where we were just saying low expected return across most asset classes. I think things are different now. So yes, the US is really expensive and there are a lot of expensive stocks out there, but that's not the case in every region and every asset class. A lot of regions are actually already the cheap side of, of sort of fair valuation. So in a way, are pointing to good expected returns. So that's why we're talking about the rest of the world against the US. There are stocks out there which are poised to give you good returns. So you don't want to be shying away as a long-term investor and thinking that those opportunities are not there. We talked about uh, insurance-linked securities. That was one of the hedge fund strategies. We, well, It's not really a hedge fund strategy, but it, when included within that bucket, actually was the top performing subcategory last year. That was an example of a, a, a market which was dislocated, which you, we took advantage of by putting capital in there when it became dislocated and other people were withdrawing, and you can get excess returns in that environment. So it's worth paying a bit of fees, doing something a bit different to get you something that rewards um, and is a bit different. And I think the, the one other example I was just going to pull out onto that is this example saying about it's expensive in some places, not others. We've talked about Japan quite a bit. And now last year, everyone is still quite rightly saying the US did really well, the best region you should have been in the US. And it was due to those seven stocks mainly. I mean, a lot of other stocks did well, but they were the leaders in in size and and in profits. Um, But when we look at Japan, Japanese um, performance was actually pretty close to the US in aggregate, slightly lower. Interestingly, when you look at the median stock, 
in Japan. The median stock did better than the aggregate. So the median stock in the US did worse. The median stock in Japan was actually higher than the US and higher than the Japanese returns. So that's a region where actually you've had 30 years of Japanese stocks being unloved, unhated, you know, hated, and they started so expensive and it, it suppressed returns for 30 years. But actually, if we're looking at the outlook of the next 10 years, they're pretty decent, pretty good returns. So, and to that point, why in Japan we've done some passive, but we've chosen activist manager is because you can get even extra returns, not only from the currency and cheap stocks, but actually by looking at those smaller companies where you need to be active, they, that's where the opportunity set is even larger at the moment. So again, going active, paying a bit more, you can actually unleash higher returns than are available, uh, for example, passively in the S&P, even in a year where the S&P um, does really well. Um, so I think, yes, it, c- it can be painful, uh, the thought of paying fees is not something you want to do in general, but as with everything in life, it's what you get after you pay for fees, which really matters. And it's thinking about the journey of the whole fees over the long time horizon. That's the important point. It's, it's what you're getting, what you're returning, compounding at when we're looking into decades that makes the difference, not really single years. Single years can make a big difference if you make a big bad decision like in the market, not in the market, um, or taking too much risk at the very wrong moment. But if you can compound in the long run and protect yourself in these more difficult periods, that's the best way to to generate long-term returns. Robert, thank you very much. Uh, As always, that's been very, very helpful. We've covered the earnings season, interest rates and hedge funds. I hope that was helpful and please join us next time. Thank you. You can subscribe to Talking Capital on all major platforms. Capital Generation Partners, LLP, is authorised and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority and is registered as an investment advisor by the US Securities and Exchange Commission. This podcast and opinions expressed do not constitute investment advice and do not constitute an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to purchase any security or any other investment or product. Nothing said during this podcast should be construed as an invitation or inducement to engage in investment activity. All information and opinions expressed herein are current as of publication and are subject to change without notice. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or recommendation from Capital Generation Partners to the listener. Capital Generation Partners makes no representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or of any of the information contained in this podcast. And any liability, therefore, including in respect to direct or indirect loss, is expressly disclaimed. Please note that the value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. This podcast may not be copied, reproduced, further distributed to any other person or published in whole or in part for any purpose. Further information, including our privacy statement, can be found on our website at www.capitalgenerationpartners.com.